welcome to Indefinable Magic, a happy alternative to having to listen to the conspiracy theorist sitting next to you on the bus. Unless, of course, that conspiracy theorist punctuates his doomsday scenarios with trivial observations about Doctor Who, in which case it's pretty much the same. I'm your narrator with a tin hat, a bunker, and a refusal to believe that anyone has been to the moon. Toby Haydock. This week's game changer, it's not cricket, the second innings. Well, actually, of course, it is cricket. And whilst I love the idea of these podcasts being single entities about a random subject plucked from the ether that you can enjoy without reference to anything else, this one does depend upon you, I guess, having heard the previous episode. I mean, there's not a story arc or recurring character, but I composed it all as one thing and then ended up going on too long and splitting it in two, so it wasn't wholly designed to be listened to in this way, if I'm honest. It's a bit like when The Five Doctors was repeated on the BBC and season 22 was broadcast abroad and they wanted 25-minute episodes, so each instalment was split up with a random cliffhanger sprinkled into the action. So, you know, whilst this isn't perfect... It is better than, say, Anita agreeing to show the Doctor the way to the Hacienda at the end of The Two Doctors Part 3 of Six, or Sarah Jane rolling down a hillock at the end of the 25-minute Part 1 of The Five Doctors. What drama. The long, off and short leg of Part 1 was that, yes, cricket has been in Doctor Who, mentioned in some stories, seen in others, like the Daleks' master plan, wholly absent from the Pertwee era, and represented by a load of balls from Tom Baker. There was lots of stuff about the mechanics of the game, some celebration of the BBC's Test Match special radio coverage, and a partial history of cricket's manifestations in TV's Doctor Who. So listen to part one first if you want to do this properly, but if not, the basic thrust is that cricket has been in Doctor Who a bit and shares some similarities, a complicated history, an insane number of statistics, and a certain eccentric charm. Now let's carry on with our trawl through the history of the game and its association with broadcast Doctor Who on the BBC. Of course, the Doctor Who story where cricket really triumphs is Black Orchid, where for several minutes there is more cricket than story. This peculiar two-episode interlude of an adventure, which features no alien creatures or intergalactic hijinks, but is instead a 1920s murder mystery and cast reunion of the palaces, thrusts the fifth Doctor, in a case of mistaken identity, into a cricket match. He is assumed to be a colleague of a certain smutty Thomas, sent in smutty's stead to play for Lord Cranley's cricket team into a match with his adopted side in serious need of assistance. He goes into bat. If you don't know what that means, perhaps you really do need to listen to part one when the score is a woeful 56 for 9. Now, cricket novices, nine wickets down means there are no more players to come for the batting side, so it's the last chance saloon. So put oh your pads on and join in the fun. The doctor needs to score many more than one run. Can't believe I just did that. Having arrived late, he is last man in. Usually a spot reserved for the worst batsman on the team, but here necessitated by manpower and the timing of the doctor's arrival. 
so credit to the unnamed batsman at the other end, who sticks with our hero like glue, in order for him to put another 88 runs on the board. In fact, it's at least 88, and probably many more, as there's plenty of talk time on screen after we last see the scoreboard, and the innings is clearly continuing. It's an almost respectable score, we're told by Lady Cranley, which leads Lord Cranley to declare that our hero is a much better player than Smutty Thomas. Smutty, by the way, is one of the great Doctor Who characters who are talked of but never seen, like the Corsair or President Zarb, the captain of Davros's prison ship in Resurrection of the Daleks, and indeed Ross, the cricket scorer and statistician in episode 8 of The Daleks' Master Plan. You know that thing I keep saying about listening to the previous episode? Yeah, cut and paste that here too. Oh, and the Doctor isn't the only imposter in Black Orchid's cricket match. It looks like the designated umpire didn't turn up either, as when the Doctor scores a boundary, the official we do have signals are wide. That's a penalty of one run awarded to the batting side if the bowler bowls a ball too wide to be hit by the batsman. Uh, never mind. In umpiring terms, that's a major error. So maybe this guy's some kind of Time Lord spy. There's definitely something Gallifreyan in the air anyway. Q. Ireland joke, by the way, because when Lord Cranley compares the Doctor to W.G. Grace, the master, the Doctor temporarily thinks he must be talking about his Time Lord arch-nemesis because, well, lest we forget, this was a time in the series' history when even the mentioning of an old regular or monster was deemed to be of immeasurable value to the programme. Unfortunately, though, it's a torturous bit of scripting gymnastics, all to facilitate a false reference, because W.G. Grace wasn't nicknamed the master. Jack Hobbs, a cricketer who did actually play during this time, so could easily have been mentioned here. Now, Hobbs is also referred to in another science fiction classic, Quatermass and the Pit, because his surname shares a spelling with a more modern nameplate on that serial's Hobbs Lane. And he actually died on the day that the first Dalek story began, and yes, his nickname was The Master. In W.G. Grace's case, his nicknames actually included The Doctor, The Old Man and The Biggin, but none of these were especially useful in these circumstances. But this was the time in the series where if you could mention continuity or a character from the show's history, then you bloomin' well would, presumably, if there'd been a real-life cricketer at the time whose nickname was, I don't know, The Conscience or The Dodecahedron or oh, The Sigri Mining Corporation or something, he'd have got a mention too. When it's his team's turn to field, the Doctor proves to be no mean bowler either, taking at least five wickets, most of them clean bowled, though we can't be 100% sure because we don't always see what's happening at the other end. He definitely takes the last three wickets after the losing side are seen at a desolatory 44 for seven. That's a bad score, non-cricket people. He also takes a very easy catch in the slips. The slips are... oh, never mind. Um, in one shot, Peter Davison, the actor, genuinely takes the wicket of an extra, much to his obvious delight. That's an extra as in a non-speaking actor, not an extra as in a score from a ball that the batsman hasn't hit, like a leg by or a wide or... oh, never mind. And the doctor, in triumph at taking the final wicket tries to clap the umpire on the arm, and the umpire, unhelpfully, moves away, leaving the Doctor's celebration 
looking slightly awkward, a bit like an unreciprocated high-five, which backs up my umpire as Time Lord agent in disguise theory that is surely ripe for some kind of exploration or spin-off. spinning off. When the Master's TARDIS is sent packing by the Doctor at the end of Time Flight, the victorious Time Lord says that his arch-enemy has been knocked back into time-space like a straight six into the pavilion, and throws a bit of mimed airbat in for good measure. And so, season 19 with the cricketing Doctor ends on a little bit of a batsman's flourish. Considering his doctor was a cricket lover and producer John Nathan Turner partially got the idea of his incarnation's cricketing image from a picture of Davison at a charity cricket match, the fifth doctor actor isn't actually that big a fan of the sport. But at this point in the show's history, the connection between these two British institutions was stark. And, like much Doctor Who in the 1980s, there's an argument that it was too stark. Peter Davison's doctor sports a cricketing image thanks to his costume throughout his tenure. It could convincingly be argued that the Doctor is too ramshackle to have a theme. Doesn't the Fifth Doctor's rigorous cricket motif smack of costuming policy rather than personality? Or even, dare I say it, clothing? People don't wear costumes except to fancy dress parties. People wear clothes. One early photo call even has Davison padded up with a wicket drawn on the TARDIS as he wields a defensive bat. Hang on, isn't this a programme about the whole of time and space, not an English cricket green, or, even more crucially, a charity showbiz 11? We now know, of course, that producer John Nathan Turner's approach to the show was all about headline-grabbing and recognisable iconography. Those ill-disposed to Nathan Turner could happily highlight the flaws inherent in this approach, but in his defence, from a producing point of view, it is not exactly a ludicrous idea that if the main character has a look then their costume can be easily replicated for merchandise. And photo shoots bring press photographers, and photos bring front pages. But something about cricket whites seem a bit, well, white. Or worse, even beige. Yes, you heard it here first. White is the new beige. Not flamboyant or colourful. And yet, looking at the costume now, designer Colin Lavers took the cricket brief and worked wonders with it. The long flowing coat and hat give Davison's Doctor a definite Who-esque silhouette, and the stripy trousers lend it a Harlequin's elan. The jumper is the problem, perhaps. It just says cricketer and nothing else, whereas the jacket and trousers could see a life, albeit an eccentric one, outside of the pavilion and the green. The jumper only works in a cricket match. And cricketers who aren't playing cricket look a bit odd. Not that the Doctor shouldn't stand out, he's always been eccentrically dressed. But when the eccentric flourish is so closely associated with something, its incongruity seems less organic, less enjoyable and somehow more contrived. I mean, he'd stand out from the crowd if he tried saving the universe dressed as a traffic warden or a sewage maintenance worker or in football shorts, but not in a good way. And it seems odd that no one, when he turns up at, say, Heathrow Airport in time flight, asks if he's on his way to a cricket match. Like, say, the one he is looking at the results of in a newspaper. Yep, another cricket reference at the beginning of that story. In real-life social situations, 
No one really comments, bar to each other or via a bitchy aside or raised eyebrow, if someone is dressed, say, a bit oddly. But if you are dressed for a specific task, people do tend to wonder out loud at you when you're going to do it. I mean, I sometimes get asked if I'm Australian simply because I wear a hat. If he had a miner's helmet on or a surgeon's mask, you'd assume he was about to burrow or operate. And, well, ditto cricket. No one dresses in cricket whites unless they're playing cricket. Whereas, although they aren't everyone's clothes of choice, a frock coat or a long scarf or a velvet jacket can lend themselves to any occasion, if you're so inclined. The doctor is not a cricketer. The doctor might play cricket, he might like cricket, but he's not a cricketer. He's an alien time-travelling scientist from a faraway planet who has mastered scientific techniques we can't possibly dream of. So he can like cricket, but he's not a cricketer. It's like finding out Merlin excels at lacrosse or God's a sucker for tiddlywinks. It dilutes the mystique. Still, credit to the team who decided that if he was going to like cricket, then he would use that love to inventive effect, as all good doctors do. And so, in only his second story, Four to Doomsday, the fifth doctor, when floating in space and caught between the devil, a spaceship he can't get to, and the deep blue box, the TARDIS, which he also can't get to, he uses the momentum generated by bouncing a cricket ball off the side of the ship and catching it to steer him to safety. The science seemed to make sense at the time, although it has been poo-pooed since by clever people. What it does demonstrate is that the fifth doctor walks around with a cricket ball in his pocket. This is a Time Lord, poised for a drive-by over should he find himself in the unlikely position of happening upon a cricket game in need of a lone, vital component. I mean, even when he does end up playing in the aforementioned Black Orchid, it is at a game where balls, as one would expect, are in plentiful supply. It's unusual to start a game without that being the case. Just the same as you tend not to get 22 people together in a field and then discover that none of them owns a football. This does, however, explain the Davison Doctor's occasionally pained, distracted air. Those balls are sizeable and heavy, so his pockets are being weighed down and his skin chafed, a constant mental and physical irritation as you go about your time-travelling and universe-saving. Anyway, the scene demonstrates that the Doctor Who team are keen on cricket working for this Doctor even before Black Orchid. But thankfully, they calmed down a bit, as it would have been a bit wearing if every week he'd have to dispatch the villain by hooking him over silly mid-off or solve a scientific conundrum using the parabola of a spinning kookaburra. That's a ball, by the way. I told you there were some daft names. The actual master, by the way, no, not Jack Hobbs and certainly not W.G. Grace, but Anthony Ainley, who played the villainous Time Lord in the 1980s, was famously rather more interested in cricket than he was in acting. Ainley was an able opening batsman, if an eccentric one, batting in full padded gear, including large goggles to protect his eyes. His colleagues at the London Theatre's Cricket Club knew him as a player who wasn't afraid to charge down the wicket to thwack the ball back over the bowler's head, but whose private nature found him dining alone in his car rather than joining everyone for traditional tea in the pavilion, although this might equally have been to do, as Ainley claimed it was, with the fact that he hated cheese of all kinds. The club's annual competition, Ainley's Ashes, is named after the actor. 
other Doctor Who thesps such as the Ice Warriors Bernard Breslau and Planet of the Spiders and Ghostlights Carl Forgione have served as honorary vice presidents of the club, which has also counted the monster of Peladon's Graham Eaton and the ghost of Enspace's Jonathan Keeble amongst its players. So the master is the genuine article, so could not possibly be described as the doctor observes of potty caves of Androzani villain Shara's Jack after a temper tantrum as more of a tennis player than a cricketer, thus ensuring the cricketing fifth doctor gives the sport he so loves a valedictory flourish in his final adventure. But if outgoing Peter Davison wasn't as much of a cricket fan as his doctor, his successor Colin Baker can thank his own interest in the sport, an interest he shares with his nemesis, Valyard actor Michael Jaston, by the way, for his getting the job when Davison hung up his plimpsoles. When invited to the BBC head of serials to see if he'd pass muster as Doctor Who, the cricket was on, and a conversation ensued. In those days, that was enough to get you greenlit, and it was a case of, who's that? Oh yes. For Doctor Who fans, an unexpected link with the sport came when former England cricket captain Mike Gatting, no less, was parachuted into an already perfectly good documentary about Doctor Who, 30 Years in the TARDIS, lest a programme about the history of Doctor Who that concentrated solely on the thoughts and memories of the people who made, wrote and starred in Doctor Who be considered something of an avant-garde proposition. I look forward to the BBC's documentary on the famous Ashes win of 2005, which eschews an interview with bowler Ashley Giles in favour of the thoughts of Jimmy V or Susie Liggett, unnecessarily celeb-upping an interesting anyway subject matter because you don't trust either the subject or the viewers enough, was a trend that began in the 1990s and would sadly only go in one direction. Oh, the Ashes, by the way, are a famous cricket trophy the results of Australia's 1882 victory in which press coverage stated that English cricket had died and the body will be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. Some irate British fan probably scribbled not my cricket somewhere to illustrate their fury. Back in the day though, the mythical ashes immediately became associated with the next series played between England and Australia, before which the England captain vowed to regain those ashes. The trophy is a mini-urn, reputed to contain the ashes of a burnt bale, which, keep up, is the top part of the wicket which has to come off the stumps, the main part, if the batter is to be bowled or run out. Oh gosh, it really is complicated, isn't it? Uh, Doctor Who has its own ashes, of course, but those ashes are sadly just what remains of all the brilliant 60s episodes that were burned to a crisp when being disposed of, including episode 8 of the Daleks' master plan, which has cricket in it. The game itself has also been invaded by Doctor Who types. For years, the in-ground announcer at Lord's Cricket Ground and something of a cherished figure in the history of the game was Alan Curtis, who plays Major Green in The War Machines and was a great fan of the sport. After he suffered a stroke some years ago, Alan sadly struggled to get about as much, though his mind remained as sharp as ever, and he still avidly followed the twists and turns of the latest series, of cricket that is, not Doctor Who, until he died earlier this year, after an innings of 90 years. Good man. In fact, director Michael Ferguson's main memory of Alan on the war machines is of him nipping out from rehearsals whenever he could to catch the latest test match developments on his portable transistor radio. When Alan was too ill to continue his announcing, his sometime stand-in, Johnny Dennis, 
aka Murray from Delta and the Bannermen, took over and became a regular fixture until Johnny died in 2016. That acting legend Milton Johns, whose Who performances, Enemy of the World, The Android Invasion and The Invasion of Time should be in the Smithsonian, has also served as a test match cricket announcer, just in case anyone was in any doubt as to his status as an all-round legendary fellow and national treasure whose knighthood is long overdue. The fact that he's the only person ever to turn up to a Doctor Who DVD commentary and audio engagement in a three-piece suit with a matching tie and pocket square seals the deal. The Doctor himself has gifted Cricket an illustrious contributor. Patrick Troughton himself was grandfather to Jim Troughton, Chris and Jamie as a nod to Grandpa's Jacobite sidekick, who is the son of King Peladon, David Troughton. Jim, a very good left-handed middle-order batsman, captained Warwickshire, winning the 2012 County Championship after narrowly missing out the year before, and even represented his country, playing for England's one-day international team. Being a cricket fan hasn't always been a great help when watching Doctor Who. Even the most reluctant schoolboy sportsman in 1988 would have had the excitement of Silver Nemesis slightly undermined by the fact that the Cybermen's hands are clearly cricket gloves sprayed silver. Being out first ball, a golden duck, is presumably the worst thing that can happen to an opening bat in a game of cyber cricket. That said, cricket could be a godsend. With your time tots of my generation, doubtless gifted their first showing of a Peter Cushing Dalek film thanks to the cricket being rained off. Like the Ice Warriors plan in The Seeds of Death, cricket very much needs the weather to be on its side in order to succeed. These movies were often used as handy schedule fillers on the occasion of inclement weather. Actually, having just said that out loud, I have to be honest and say that I haven't checked that but it certainly seemed like something that happened a lot during my childhood. I do know for sure, however, that when industrial action prevented the broadcasting of a bank holiday cricket match in May 1974, 4.6 million viewers got a bonus compilation of the Sea Devils to watch, with the Doctor and the Navy against biped marine turtles in a match that could take place never mind how much water there was. As I've said already, like Doctor Who, much of cricket's appeal soaks in through osmosis. You don't have to understand everything that's going on. You don't necessarily even have to see it to enjoy it. But it is a rarefied world, one with its own history and personalities, its own controversies, and it is all rather charming and part of a greater whole. The broadcasting of the sport is as much a part of it as what goes on in the field. In fact, it isn't uncommon for people at the game itself to have the BBC coverage accompanying them in their ears. You can even get special hats with earphones tuned into the right station built in. Frankly, the third best invention in the history of mankind after the canned gin and tonic and, um, well, Doctor Who. And one of the fantastic things about broadcast cricket is that when rain comes or light fails, the broadcasters have to make something out of nothing. Like the Doctor Who production team conjuring planets and monsters and concepts, sometimes at the last minute and out of thin air, the test match special team keep smiling and because they are skilled and smart and adaptable and funny, can create hours of unmissable radio with few resources and a lot of pluck. Oh, and the gift of the gab. But 
cricket is ever-changing. Although it retains its key elements, the game today looks and sounds and feels very different in many ways. It's the same, yet it's different. One day and 2020 cricket seem to be more popular than the longer-paced five-day matches. The modern viewer is not expected to have the concentration span for the more languid pace of the protracted competition. The more concentrated games have frequent dramatic high points and increasing intensity, and the gradual build-up of pace punctured by occasional shock moments has been replaced by enforced moments of excitement and a sometimes rushed conclusion, all of the sound and fury and never mind the poor players. For some, though, much of the nuance and subtlety has gone, the attritional element of the game diminished by a need for spectacle. Some old-timers bemoan that sacrifice of the old way of doing things, but, well, I'm a pragmatist. I like cricket in all its forms, so long as it keeps its charm and excitement. I'll keep coming. When I was younger, the boring days were really boring. There seemed sometimes to be an unnecessarily languid approach to the story the game was telling, as if entertaining the spectator wasn't the highest priority of the game's purveyors. Sometimes... The players were there for themselves and not the viewing public. Hearing them now criticising the modern way of doing things whilst being blind to their own faults is not a habit exclusive to old cricketers, as some former script editors I could mention, where I have a less generous nature, prove only too well. That said, the current cult of youth in the commentary box, with recent players increasingly favoured in place of wise old veterans with distance perspective and old-school charm, as well as a little something called personality, is perhaps not quite my cup of tea. I think age and wisdom bring character, whereas the current regime at the BBC Sports Desk seem not to favour the old guard who so captured my young imagination, but rather media-trained newbies who were still playing the game five minutes ago and are perhaps too close to the players they are discussing. Trevor and Scott in the Daleks' master plan will, if we're not careful, not be quite so funny to future viewers. But if cricket is to survive until Stephen Taylor and Sarah Kingdom's time, it will need to do something. The umpires, thanks to technology referrals for contentious decisions, have already been partially replaced by robots, so Time Lord agents, beware. And as you know, the chances are that I resist change because none of us really like things that change because they make us insecure. And yet Doctor Who's very survival is based on adapting to moving with the times so long as its essence remains. And the same could be said for cricket, and so maybe I'm out of my time anyway. There are as many character moments and bits of high drama in the shorter-form games, and we are blessed that the game still attracts some fantastic purveyors of skill and ability, players who are better trained than ever before and so can do things only dreamed of by previous generations, and, be honest, Toby, these commentators only seem young because you've got old, actually, and things have to evolve, and I'm a bit of a snob, and I'll still listen anyway, and I'll get over it, and actually, Phil Tufnell is pretty sharp and a forensic analyst of the game, and Alison Mitchell and Isha Guha are long-overdue female fixtures in the box who prove that you can be knowledgeable and witty about cricket without being an old white geezer, and they are at least the equal of their male contemporaries, so there you go. Oh, yes. Cricket, after a very long time, has even let women into the fam now. And guess what? 
the world didn't end, and the sport didn't die. And yes, now that broadcasters treat the women's game with just as much importance and significance as the men's, we can see that in female hands, the game boasts just as much skill and zeal for competition and just as many moments of charm. Oh yes, moving with the times. Or, to put it another way, time travel. Thank you for listening to Indefinable Magic. Tonight's episode, Doctor Who and the Cricket, the second innings, which was written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. Alan Curtis, Johnny Dennis and Milton Johns all subjected themselves to my Who's Round podcast, which is available for free from Big Finish. Test match special coverage is available on the BBC, with podcasts covering past games also available. Rain is available in the UK pretty often, and will continue to be so for many, many years. The music for Indefinable Magic was specially composed by Dominic Glynn, and the podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson. If you enjoy this stuff, you can support me on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock, which has different tiers that you can unlock. And there's bonus and early material, but it's generally a pay what you can, pay what you want model. Uh, It starts from as little as £3, although there's a discount of 10% on that if you go for a year all in one go. But look, if you don't want to do the monthly or yearly commitment, you can do a one-off buying me a coffee at Kofi if you're feeling A, sorry for me, B, flush today, or C, a little bit of both. That's kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. But I know times are tough and I am just grateful to you for listening, but I'll tell you what costs you nothing. Going to your podcast outlet and giving this a little bit of a review, positive please, uh, and a star rating, five stars only, five stars, really, really helps to get word out there and to make my algorithms look like the best algorithms that have ever been given algae or rhythm. So do that. Uh, Anyway, that's enough of that. I hope I've made your day a little bit better and more interesting than it was half an hour ago. That's all I aim for. Until next time I attempt to do that, stay safe and well, and happy times and places to you and yours. This has been Indefinable Magic. I'm Toby. Goodbye. Sincere thanks are due to patrons who include Steve Hatcher, Duncan Harvey, Simon Hodges, Sam Hollingsworth, Matthew Houliston, Darren Howard, Gregory Hudson, David Hughes, Paul Ingerson, Robert Jewell, Christopher Joyce, Judith Jackson, Jeff Kaplan, William Keith, Matthew Kilburn, Andy Kitching, Hendrik Korzenioski, Ruben Herfindahl, Peter Harness, John Deere, Ian Key, Rob Leonard, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Paul Cook, Peter Crocker, Rob Dawson, Chris Dunford Kelk, Chris Phone, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, and Barry Platt. I don't know how I'll ever thank you because uh, these things would not be going on to the extent that they are without your support, and I'm consistently flabbergasted and grateful. Cheers. (laughs) 